Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome and we stay in the greater Toronto area today to talk to Michael Gaguerre and one of his many activities is to be involved in an organization called Compass. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and talk about his background and his story. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for having me uh, on the uh, Community Innovation Hub this afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So, Michael, let's start with your academic background. Where did you go to school? That is a great question. I went to, I often say that I went to the school of uh, hard knocks. My educational background is as eclectic as my career. I often say that uh, I got my Bachelor of Business Administration at the University of Pizza Plus Limited. That's a business that I operated while my peers were going to university. And I like to quip that I was writing business plans to finance my business while my peers were writing uh, business plans to get a mark from a professor. So on top of that, I have a very uh, broad collection of uh, evening courses and night school that sort of waxed and waned depending where I was moving my career. It's so uh, I would say it, it never amounted to a degree, a <laughs> couple of diplomas, but uh, that's uh, sort of speaks uh, broadly to my uh, education in the School of Hard Knocks and which led to uh, a rather rewarding and diversified career which we can we can get into as much as you want so you're street smart and not education smart uh <clears throat> i'd say i'm street smart and fairly broadly read so okay excellent. <laughs> okay michael let's get into work before you started your business well, I uh, after my fast food uh, uh, enterprise in my early mid twenties, I wound up in the aerospace industry, and uh, I was there in the aerospace industry for fifteen years, winding up my, as my role of quality control manager in an organization that some of us of a certain age will remember, called Spar Aerospace. It was a preeminent aerospace firm in this country and had worldwide recognition, probably comparable to what BlackBerry was to phones in the not too distant past. In that role, we I was overseeing uh, uh, the engineering models for the space robotics, uh, the uh, uh, the elbow and uh, hand end effector unit, technically for the Canada Arm, which had uh, quite a bit of international fame and. Uh, radio wave guide vanes for the radar sat uh, uh, satellite that uh, checks our weather above the planet, as well as a bunch of commercial and military uh, flight critical components. So that was my life in in aerospace, and uh, and getting downsized in a contraction in the market in the early '90s. This thing called ISO 9000 was just evolving. It's an international standard for quality management. Well, with my background in NATO uh, quality, uh, allied quality assurance plans and military quality plans and big prime contractor quality plans, I was a 
it was an industry made for me. So I pivoted and it got into the uh, ISO registration world dealing with uh, quality and environmental management systems, wound up uh, spending eight years at KPMG as a senior manager and director of registration services there. And in my late 40s, uh, decided uh, I could go on my own. So I've been a self-employed uh, consultant for the last uh, close to 20 years uh, working in that field. And uh, here I am. Okay. So as a sideline, when you have nothing to do, you got involved in an organization called Compass. So tell us what that is. Well, uh, just uh, briefly how I uh, moved into this realm with my organizational expertise uh, i felt that i had something to give to the not-for-profit world and as i was moving into what i still refer to as semi-retirement so picking and choosing the clients i want to work with and developing more time for myself i thought ah not-for-profit board governance is an area where i can perhaps lend some expertise uh, so i jumped into that world first with a pillar arts organization in Mississauga called Visual Arts Mississauga. And coincident with that, I got involved with the Compass. And how that happened, the Compass is an organization. It's a, it actually, its technical name is the Lakeshore uh, Community Outreach Center. It operates under the, the name of the Compass, which is how it's uh, broadly known. And it was uh, initiated 20 years ago, actually, this year. Uh, by a group of local churches, of which the church that I belong to now, Christ First United, uh, was one of the founding member churches. Uh, and each church uh, selects or elects or <laughs> coerces <laughs> a representative that will be a board member on the compass representing that church. And... Uh, the opportunity manifest itself for me, and I was asked if I would be our church rep and a member of the Compass Board approximately, oh, was it five years ago, I believe? Uh, so I've been on the Compass Board since then, and since I formally joined the Compass, I've been a frontline worker. I've been um, on the what we called market committee. I chaired the communications and development committee, and... Um, uh, was asked if I would move into the chair position, and I filled that role for the last two years. So, so you're the, the big boss. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm not the big boss. I'm um, hopefully the coach, uh, the guide, the uh, the puller together of uh, our uh, disparate skills. Uh, so, coach and guide, I think, is the way I like to think of myself. So, Michael, what does Compass do? Is it programs? Is it events? Services? Yes, <laughs> all of those. Um, our uh, our uh, mission statement is uh, hope for today and uh, help for today. I beg your pardon. Help for today and hope for tomorrow. Um, and help for today manifests itself uh, broadly through our food bank. And hope for tomorrow broadly manifests itself through our, our programming. So uh, we, we prided ourselves on uh, uh, some distinguishing features about our organization. Uh, one, if I look at the food bank aspect, we were always uh, 
market driven, meaning market oriented, meaning we actually made, uh, had the food bank set up like a small grocery or a market with shopping carts. So a client would come in, work with a shopper and select items from the shelves that uh, they wanted against a sort of an allocation of compass dollars or compass points until they filled their allotment based on, and their allotment was adjusted based on the size of their family and so forth. And that was quite, uh, quite a different approach than many food banks that sort of say, here's a given hamper. And why we stuck to that model was it gave our clients some agency over uh, what they could uh, pick. And it was really focused on, on, on the dignity uh, we recognize that our clients are part of our community. They really are us. We could be a client at some point in the future. If if the stars didn't align well for us and we didn't have good insulation of financial resources or loved ones to look after us, and that's really the circumstances many of our clients face. So that model of a food bank was a distinguishing feature. On top of that, we had a variety of uh, on-site programs which included such things as uh, uh, something we called men's night, something we called women's night. These were events where people would gather for a communal dinner and we would have some kind of an event, perhaps uh, a, as simple as a walk in the park or a guest speaker or maybe a local politician come in and present to the, to the folks, those, those type of things. Uh, we had a program on Saturdays for uh, fellowship and companionship. It's sort of, we called it Saturday night at the movies, but it was a simple movie shown in our facility uh, with a small meal provided. Uh, we had Bible studies offered for people that wanted that. We had English as a second language program, and that was not a formal program. That was more of a social program for people to practice uh, in a social setting, their English skills. We offered computer training. We had on-site uh, haircutting provided by volunteers, hairdressers that would come in. And um, uh, oh, I, there was one that just went out of my head. It was a big one. It'll come to me. Uh, then uh, the pandemic hit, and we had to uh, switch you know, very quickly and rapidly. So two years ago, or we have just about two years ago now, <laughs> was we're coming up to the anniversary of we had to shut down all on-site programming and for the last two years we've been operating as um, strictly a food bank um, what we managed to accomplish in that time was we were able to quickly revert back to custom tailored hampers so we developed an online ordering system so that based on our inventory clients could actually go online using their smartphone or something comparable and by the way i think something in the order of 70 percent of our clients have access to that kind of technology the remaining um 30 would call in but the point being that the order would be pre-picked and they're and they would have an allotted time to come and pick it up and we could process people in you know under five minutes so we were able to maintain that sort of agency or ownership over what people selected even though we were just a food bank and we felt very i guess as volunteers we felt disappointed that we weren't doing our full scope of work in in nurturing the 
the side of people that needed the, the social aspect of our programs. On the other hand, we're, we were reminded by other peer organizations that we networked with and, and uh, people with wisdom that the work we were doing and continuing to do through the pandemic was important, necessary, and vital. So it made us feel a little better. Moving uh, into uh, what we hope is rapidly becoming post-COVID, it looks like things are gonna open up again. Uh, and we're looking forward to starting up with uh, men's program, our income tax clinic. That's one I, I meant to mention before that I'd forgotten, I think, uh, income tax clinic we have coming up. And uh, hopefully on-site haircutting, it will slowly open up with our, our programs, and we're looking forward to that happening throughout the, uh, the later part of the spring. Through the summer, we'll resurrect our summer barbecues, which was a program we had. And hopefully back to normal, I would say, <laughs> ish, and maybe, maybe normal is an improved version of ourselves, but uh, getting back to our programming and our more for our, our hope for tomorrow help. But one other thing I want to mention, uh, we benchmark against other organizations and peer organizations and our, uh, our paid staff, our full-time equivalents is, uh, you know, probably half of what would be typical or less than half of what's typical. We're very volunteer oriented. So we have four, four staff, none of whom are full-time uh, that help yet. Uh, we have uh, 30,000 volunteer hours a year. We distribute, you know, over 600,000 pounds of food. You know, we're serving a uh, thousand people a week, you know, so it's a, there's a lot going on. It's uh, very much uh, volunteer based and it's not just the uh, client facing activities that actually occur at the compass, all the background work of, uh, you know, many aspects of, uh, communications, uh, fundraising, uh, governance, our, our whole finance team, which is a huge job. They're all volunteers. So, so we try to stick to that volunteer model and, uh, we rely uh, for funding on our community support. So very, um, outside of, um, ongoing programs where there's some, some, uh, summer student programs from the federal government and that sort of thing we are not beholding really to uh, government funding bodies. So it gives us a greater degree of autonomy on how we go about our work and what we do. Michael, you're a creative guy. So let's uh, talk three years from today. What's Compass going to look like? Uh, I love that question. Um, before the pandemic, we were starting to ask ourselves, um, we're, we're really rather good at the help for today part with our food bank. And we weren't doing a bad job with the hope for tomorrow piece, but we thought there's work to do on our hope for tomorrow piece. And uh, we started to give some thought to that. And we started to look at things like uh, uh, increasing our capacity. And when I say increasing our, our capacity, I look at something, uh, for example, I look at an aspect of our operation called uh, our intake team. Some organizations uh, like us uh, call, call that the client advocacy group. Whatever the name, the point is, this is where the client is first met 
and we learn of their needs and we set them up. It's an incredibly uh, stressful job for the intake team because they're seeing people that are suffering. You know, these are people that are traumatized. And sure, we would take them in and we would find out the size of the family. We'd find out their needs. And from that, they'd get allocated some compass dollars that would define uh, how much food they could get and how frequently they could shop at the compass. Beyond that, we tried as best as we could to identify external organizations that they might need, you know, whether it was a, a, a government agency or another not-for-profit. And we would try to point them in the right direction as much as we could with our, our limited resources. Um, uh, we would try to follow up with them. But invariably, that was, that was um, challenging for our clients. Some of these... Some of these systems are, are kind of find the diplomatic uh, word. They're awkward for people to access, you know. People that are skilled on using the internet have time can, you know, navigate through them. But if you've got limited resources, limited time, uh, you're frustrated, you're nervous, and maybe your computer isn't the latest, you can quickly get frustrated and give up. And I think that's what was happening. All that to say, this was an area we were exploring. So uh, we really started to focus on trauma-informed care, and we started uh, started some training programs. We've picked up the ball on that again, so our frontline workers are getting uh, in, uh, training in trauma-informed care. And what that speaks to is, first, uh, learning about the forms of trauma that our clients have faced, and they faced all kinds of things that we seldom can relate to if we come from a stable and loving home. And, and that helps us understand some of the reactions we might get from a client that might be counterintuitive to us and we don't understand them. The other piece of trauma-informed care is helping the volunteer understand things and build a resiliency within themselves so that their capacity, not just for the volume of clients, but for um, dealing with the trauma that our clients face in a compassionate way is increased. So that's what I meant by increasing capacity. So there's an area where we're, uh, we see an opportunity to strengthen our intake process, our intake team, and what I vision happening and and this is me as chair. This is we are we are moving into a strategic planning cycle in the fall. I'll comment more about that in a moment. But what I see evolving is, um, a, a, a notionally, a vertically integrated team whereby we have the intake process, and now we've got, depending on the complexity or or the uh, uh, the problems the person uh, person faces at a minimum uh, the person is directed to the food bank at the maximum we've got a team of perhaps three or four people that are expert at say accessing a government program and that would sit and work with the person until and they're advocated with until the person's connected and in the system as they need to so uh, so the long answer is uh, coming down to it. Uh, punch. I, I, I see a big place for us to 
be a better version of ourselves is uh, with a really robust intake uh, program with great trauma-informed care, with well-educated volunteers, with uh, a vertically integrated care team, custom tailored to the needs of individual clients to really help us help them better. I see the food bank um, continuing uh, as it is. I, I like to think in the in the future this is pie in the sky but uh food banks in roughly the last 20 20 to 25 years have become normal we expect them to exist they shouldn't exist they're a symptom of far bigger um, uh, socioeconomic problems not the least of which is the affordability of housing if you look if you look at food insecurity that our clients face, I would say almost without exception, the root cause is the, is the uh, lack of affordability of shelter or the proportion of their income that's going to pay for shelter. And that speaks to the, the variation we have in clients. You know, a, a client that may be in the, uh, just uh, between the 30 and 40% of income May, may have periodic uh, food insecurity and they, they maybe show up at the compass uh, uh, once every couple of months or, or three months or four months. A person 40 to 50% or a family in the 40 to 50% range, maybe you know once a month or more. And a person higher than that, they're, they're a weekly shopper. You know, so, and, and of course, if you're battling any mental health, including uh, substance abuse, uh, um, disorders, uh, those are exacerbated by uh, a lack of security and housing. So uh, if you're on the edge, you haven't got a chance of, 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 you've got a limited chance of not sliding off the edge. So um, <laughs> it's a big dream, but if we can get to grips with some of these problems, and quite frankly, I've said this to, to, to many people, we can we can um, throw stones all we want at whatever the governing party is of the day, at our local politicians, at government agencies. The political will for change comes in the hearts and minds of the electorate. And if we want to throw stones at, for example, our local councillors, and by the way, the councillors in our area, I think, are first rate. I'm big fans of them. They work hard. Um, they're wonderful people. They have to get elected. <laughs> if they stand up and say, hey, I'm all for affordable housing. I'm going to build some in your neighborhood, Mike. I might go, cool. I think it's great. Uh, eight more of my neighbors are going to go, I don't want to devalue my house. Well, you know what? My house is worth an absolutely ridiculous amount of money. If it went down by 20%, it would still be a hugely great investment. I mean, I'm rambling a bit here, but the point is we have to recognize in our hearts and minds the voting public and the lion's share of the voting public. The people that our politicians pander to are homeowners. We, we have the highest turnover, turnout of, of voters. We have to mobilize uh, renters. We have to mobilize people at the lower end of the economic spectrum to get out and vote, and their vote matters. They're disenfranchised. They're turned off. And we have to change our hearts and minds. So, so is this a compass responsibility as you see it? It's, um, 
It's broader it, than that, I think. It, it, it's, it's broader. I think what we, we do have, um, one, one of our, our focuses sort of outside of our, our core talent, the Compass has very broad brand recognition in South Mississauga. Um, it's very well recognized by the community, very well supported. Uh, there's many businesses that support us both for altruistic reasons and for practical reasons. It's good to be recognized and, and, and that's good. There's not a politician that doesn't like to be seen to be supporting the compass. And, and we, we applaud and recognize that our, our politicians at uh, every level of every stripe have been very supportive of us. And we've always had a good rapport with them. Ergo, we, we, we try to avoid being a political animal. Having said that, as a subcommittee of our communications team, we have something we call the advocacy committee. And the responsibility that we, we have as an organization through the blood, sweat, and tears of our volunteers that have allowed us to become this well-recognized organization, the responsibility we have is to help us be a megaphone and an advocate for the vulnerable voices, the voice of the vulnerable of the people we serve. So we do have an advocacy team that tries to uh, link in and uh, shout as loudly as we can and dig into some of these issues uh, as, as loudly as we can without being controversial. So it's a bit mooted. Okay, Mike, I want to... You're doing some incredible stuff. How do you measure the effectiveness of this? It's not all about outputs. It's about outcomes. And I'm just wondering how you go about measuring the effectiveness of what you're doing. This is uh, a big challenge. We started, uh, I think, this year at our annual general, general meeting, we will have the third iteration of our impact report. And uh, looking at and trying to assess our impact was a challenge for us, but it was a, uh, a challenge we felt we needed to take because it helps us show our stakeholders uh, what we're doing, you know, and, and beyond, uh, hey, uh, you know, uh, we could say, 96% of uh, the dollar goes to the cause. Yeah, we could say that. We've distributed 600,000 pounds of food. Cool, you know. We needed to get beyond those numbers. And um, so on the food bank side, it's relatively straightforward. You know, we fed X number of people. We provided X pounds of food. We started to really quantify the proportion of food that was healthy choices. That was a conscious move. So we could quantify that and we have done so. So we can quantify protein and, you know, in form of milk and eggs and so forth as a proportion of our pounds. So we started to do all that on the uh, program side. It's, it's, it's a much softer uh, measurement. So we started to uh, get feedback from clients. Uh, we started to quantify the people that were participating in programs uh, and, and put that down in, in um, objective terms to give a, an, uh, an indication of uh, impact. 
on top of that, uh, so coincident, or I guess, yeah, coincident with, with that effort. So as I say, we're coming up to our third iteration of an impact report. And I would say our second one was an evolution from the first, and our third will be an evolution. So we're finding better ways to refine our metrics to look exactly at that impact. Okay, Mike, we're running short of time. So I'm going to ask you, what is the Compass website? Uh, <laughs> www.thecompass.ca. Very straightforward. And if you just put in The Compass Mississauga, you'd find it, thecompass.ca. Terrific. Well, I like what you're doing in your semi-retirement. <laughs> and I'm sure you'll do more when you retire. <laughs> and the important thing is that you're having fun doing it. So thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me, Peter.